0: From jail, Paul chooses joy. He's been incarcerated unjustly, he's been imprisoned wrongly, and he chooses from that setting to write this little letter called Philippians. We summarized it in a way, not the only way, that no matter your circumstance, you choose joy, a recurring theme in this little letter. Now, Paul is writing in this, these few verses that he will ultimately be delivered, that he has a future destiny. You might say he'll be vindicated, but in this text of what Paul's experience is like, our task is to understand the context of the passage and how it applies in our current life and our experience, what are timeless theological biblical principles, and what of course we can apply from, and that's a bit of an art, it's a bit of a science, so we exercise care. This is the very word of God, and we want to be careful how we glom it on or use it. Uh, Suffering can kind of fall into at least three categories. I mean, there's innumerable ones, but just for conversation's sake. um, Self-inflicted injury. We can do things that are bad. We can choose to sin. We can make poor choices, and there may be consequences. We're fallen creatures in a fallen context. So because of that, bad things happen to us. It doesn't mean we're bad people, but we're fallen creatures in a fallen context. And third, we can suffer at the hand of someone else. Opposition, injustice, being wrongly treated— very, again, very general categories. But in each one of these, Paul's going to tell you and me the response is the same. We choose to have joy no matter our circumstance. That is a very hard thing for the Western Christian mind to comprehend. Uh, in these first uh, two verses, verses 18 through 20, we're going to see the primary word deliverance. And the second section I'm going to look at is destiny. So Paul's going to tell about his deliverance And then he's going to tell about his destiny. For the setup, let me reread the first couple of verses again. Verse 18, the last phrase, yes, and I will rejoice. I remind you when you read, I will, in the Psalter, in any prayer form, it's a choice. When the psalmist says, I will sing to the Lord, I will praise you, I will come, that's a choice the worshiper makes. No one can make you do anything. You have to make a choice. I constantly tell parents, your kids are free agents. You can't make them into good, law-abiding, wonderful, Jesus-loving people. They're free agents, and they get to make the choice as we all do. Yes, I will choice. I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. That's the word I want you to keep in your mind. Through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So, Paul is in this deliverance statement talking about their prayers and a provision. They're prayers that they're offering on his behalf and the provision of the Holy Spirit. Just as an aside, when we read about the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's just another way of saying the Holy Spirit. Don't get worked up about you know, what's going on here. It's just another way of saying a similar thing. There's much more in Christology and pneumatology, but that's all we need for now. He's saying this is going to turn out for my deliverance. And on the slide I have in italics with the little word soteria. Um, You might have heard the word soteriology, sozo in Greek, and a bunch of different stems of this word, word forms. And this word means to be saved. Our Bibles will often translate it deliverance, and it depends on context and usage and other things I won't bore you with. But you need to understand in the main, deliverance or salvation means that a person, man, woman, or child, has put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. That he lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ, and Christ alone receive a gift called eternal life. They also are forgiven of their sins, and they begin a new relationship with God. You are part of God's family. You're part of the kingdom of God. So this deliverance word, this salvation word, is a big word in Old and New Testaments. Sometimes it is used for a physical deliverance, not a spiritual one. In Acts 27 34, uh, Christy shared this with the kids a few weeks ago. You, you may recall that um, Paul, uh, Paul is encouraging the sailors that the ship is about to wreck. They've jettisoned the cargo. Uh, one of the saddest verses in Acts is they threw the ship's tackle over with their own hands. The way to control the boat was tossed. It was so desperate they were willing to jettison everything to live. And Paul encourages them to take provision. He says, eat something. Although you've lost everything, you're going to live. So he warns the soldiers and sailors, don't kill everybody. Don't kill the passengers. Don't kill the prisoners. You're going to live. But you need to eat something because you'll be preserved. Same word. Is he talking about their salvation spiritually? No, you're going to live through the storm. Sometimes there may be a wordplay. Sometimes it might be both temporal, and eternal. But I just illustrate, when Paul uses the word here, it causes us to lean in. Is he saying, I'm going to get out of prison? I'm ultimately going to be delivered from jail? Or is he talking about something future? And we have to look at the whole passage to get a sense on where he's going with it. Ultimately, he will be vindicated. He'll be set right. There's something sewn in the fabric of, especially Americans, about injustice and right and wrong. That's why crime shows and crime podcasts are so insatiable for us. Um, My wife and I are listening to a a podcast I won't name, but we're listening to it, and it's all about catching the bad guy. And there's something in us that, what, what are we crying out for? There's something in us that wants justice. We want the perpetrator, the evil, we want them dealt with, and we want the victim, the one who was harmed, uh, they want, we want them set free, or, or identified, or absolved, or whatever, um, acquitted. It's sewn hardwired into us. And perhaps Paul is saying here, I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be vindicated. And many scholars take that view of this word. I'm not quite there. I see their point. But we have fair application to say that would be certainly a legitimate observation of Paul's life. Now, Paul connects this forthcoming deliverance with these two phrases the prayers and provisions. The prayers of the Philippians and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. You have to keep this together. This is a little bit of thinking cap. This is prime rib or steak this morning, not milk. So you got to stay with me and think a little bit with this passage, what Paul is doing here. I don't understand all I know about the Bible. I don't understand all I know about prayer. But this is a very important topic. The scripture teaches it whether I can explain it all and understand it all. I still accept it and trust it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes, You also joining in helping us through your prayers. Somehow, when we pray for others, it helps them. In Romans chapter 15, 30. Now, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers. Now, from an academic, theological, principled thing, prayer helps. But how? If it's outcome-based, we have a whole new set of questions to ask and answer. Because if we pray and a person doesn't get better, then how did our prayer help many of you have been in a situation where you've been ill or or maybe something terrible going on and you'll, you'll hear the phrase I could feel other people's prayers you ever heard that or said that I heard it just this week about a politician that's being eviscerated they said I can feel other people's prayers." I don't know what that means I have no idea does that mean they got a lot of email and made them feel better I don't mean to be unkind I just don't know what it means What I do know is Scripture enjoins us to pray for others. The Scripture enjoins us that we help others in our prayer. And this is why I say I don't understand all I know. Some of you have a far, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but a more robust, more intimate prayer life than me. That's true in the body of Christ. And, And maybe you can enlighten me on this. But the problem we have in thinking about prayer horizontally is if then. I've talked about this again and again. If then theology is a dead end. If I do this, then this may or may not happen. If it doesn't happen, I've got a problem. If it does happen, of course we thank the Lord and praise God. If it doesn't happen, we say, oh, the Lord's teaching me something else. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Let's be clear where the Scripture's clear. Let's don't inject things that aren't in the text. Scripture tells us, Paul tells us here, that the Philippians' prayer for him was a provision, but there's a little insight here. He says the provision is in the Spirit of Christ. So let's think about this. When you trusted Christ, when you walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, whatever you did, when you placed your trust in Christ and Christ alone, you were immediately indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You do not get more or need more of God's Spirit. This isn't a quantity issue. Once you trust Christ, the Spirit indwelt you. And this is one of my. Uh, head-scratchers with contemporary Christian music that sometimes we don't sing, but sometimes churches might sing, more of the Spirit, or inviting the Spirit to show up. That just gives me the back of my, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. The Bible doesn't say this. The Bible doesn't teach this. I don't mean to be unkind to people that write this music, but sometimes Don't let contemporary music teach you theology, maybe. Uh, Sometimes. Um, And hymns aren't always perfect either. My point simply is, we're not inviting more of the Spirit. If you've been around me any length of time, I go back again and again to Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a brilliant passage. It's easy to memorize. It's easy to grasp. What's he saying? If you're drunk, if you take an external substance... Consume it to excess. That alcohol will control you. Don't be drunk with wine. That's just a patient. That's why a quiet person gets loud. That's why a humble person might become a fighter. That's why somebody you you lose your control. You don't have any restraint. You say and do things you would not normally do because you've consumed too much alcohol and now you're not in control. Don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation. But Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Are we drinking the Holy Spirit? No, Paul says, be controlled by. Don't let the external substance control you. Let God's Spirit, let Christ's Spirit control you. How do you and I let Christ's Spirit control? You submit to Him. This is not experiential, although sometimes our experience may align. Great, when it does. It's a biblical foundation. It's what we know of the personal work of Christ. The Spirit will never lead, teach, guide, or incline something contrary to the Bible. Because he's the person of the Godhead three. So when you and I walked out, prayed to the prayer, the moment we trusted Christ, we're indwelt. So what are they saying in this? I mean, what's he saying about the Philippians? These are some pretty mature people, number one. Because he is telling them and us that when you pray for me, that I have the provision of Christ's spirit, let me put it in real simple terms. I'm in jail, I don't like the way things are working out, but if I submit to the control of the Holy Spirit, I can choose joy even though I'm in jail. I need God's spirit to control me all the time, as do you. When things are going terribly, I need to lean upon and depend upon God's word and God's spirit Otherwise, my nature will come out. I'll be impatient. I'll be angry. I'll be cynical. I'll be sarcastic. So Paul is saying, my deliverance is going to come. And I thank you for your prayers, for the provision of the spirit of Christ. Because I'm in handcuffs. I'm in jail unjustly. I'm being mistreated. And wink, wink, we might say, this is hard. I don't enjoy being in jail. I'd much rather be out with you. But this is where God has me at the moment. No one needs more of God's Spirit. We have enough, quote-unquote, we need to submit to the person, not ask for more or a filling. If we sew Paul's theology of, of pneumatology together, this is very consistent. And it's really not that hard to see if we look at our Bibles carefully. Paul's expectation and hope going forward is that he'll have a boldness to live for Christ. They'll have a boldness. No matter the apostle, elder, statesman who's in jail was still human. He would be susceptible to fear and anxiety and illness, just like any other human being. I don't think that's overreading into the text. We spent um, about a month in Nigeria years ago with some pastors with the Evangelical Church of West Africa (EQUA). Now it's called Evangelical Churches of Winning Africa, I think. But um, about 8 million people in, is part of ECWA, and uh, I was privileged to go over there with a friend. And we were in, if, if you've been in some of these so-called developing areas, um, there's a lot of breakdowns and delays and problems. It's just part of the shtick. You have to get used to it. You, you can't be the ugly American. And we were driving an older Peugeot that broke down about every other day, and we changed the head gasket on the side of the road more times than I can remember and it's quite joyful to have a couple of box wrenches and have to change a head gasket on a car on the side of the road. So um, we had all kinds of issues. We had issues with some pretty, uh, let's just say, not really nice Muslims, and on and on and on. Uh, but we were stranded about 70 kilometers from the main road in the, what they refer to as the bush, with no one around. And so we had to spend the night in the car for fear of animals if we got out of the vehicle. It's pretty exciting, actually. And so the next morning we had to figure out how to get 70 miles back to this little two-way road. And uh, there was a woman on the trip. Her, her, they go in, in that culture, uh, your firstborn son, if it's Joseph, then your are Mama Yusuhu, Mama Joseph from then on. And so uh, Mama Yusuhu uh, had this saying, when everything was going bad, she would say, everything is unfolding according to God's plan. Almost four weeks I heard this whenever we had a problem. Everything is unfolding according to God's plan. Everybody. Now, 70 miles from the road without a head gasket, I was not a happy person. No AAA. No, when I could call to come get me with a tow truck, you're in a bush. And so I was, I was not happy, and I was tired, and uh, sleeping in a car is not fun. And so I was a little bit exasperated, and the ugly American leaked out. And she made that comment. And I said, are you telling me, Mommy Suhu, that everything is unfolding according to you? really believe that? You think that's true? And I'm pretty worked up. She looks at me and she goes, Michael, everything is unfolding according to God's plan. <laughs> and it is. Self-inflicted consequences of my own sin. Fallen creatures in a fallen condition. Injustice, persecution, harm done to you. Very simplistic way of looking at it, but everything is unfolding according to God's plan. We just may not like it. Paul says, from jail I choose joy. The next word I want to talk about briefly is this word, exalted. It's one of those words, you know, you probably never use the word exalted unless you're reading the Bible or something. Um, I mean, maybe you do. Let me know. He says, Christ, even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Now, what in the world does that mean? These religious words that mean nothing to our English ears. Uh, it simply means to make something greater, to make something large. There are some contemporary Christian songs that talk about making God's name greater. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, Paul's saying here that these afflictions, these challenges, these injustices, you're praying for me through the provision of Christ's spirit, uh, because I want to exalt the name of Christ. I want to make the name of Christ loud. uh, Think of pro-choice and pro-life demonstrators on Capitol Hill. They have placards and bullhorns and they're yelling and maybe they have a speaker and a system and they're screaming and yelling and they're holding up signs and wearing shirts and talking about life or women's rights. What are they doing? They're making their issue loud. They're exalting their issue. That's a very good way of thinking about this. But we're to exalt the name of Christ. We're to make large the name of Christ. Paul says, when I'm delivered... I will make large, even more so what Christ has done." Now I need to talk about prayer for just a moment. I said I don't understand all I know, and when it comes to prayer, um, the, the nature of prayer is hard to comprehend. The, super nature, the supernatural part of prayer is even more complicated to understand. Again, there's a lot of clear teaching in Scripture on it, but when we're in difficulty and loss and distress and hurt, whatever, fill in the blank, we're, we're most Christians have this idea, if I do this, then God will fix my problem. And we have to be careful of that. Certainly, we ask God for anything. Read the Psalter. The psalmist prayed, lots of them, for God to fix their problem. Many of those psalms end with an unanswered petition. So we have to understand that life of faith is not simply getting God to fix something for us, but we're taught to pray. When we started Sunbridge, we said exposition, discipleship, and prayer. If you're part of this church and continue to come, we have a little handbook back there by Ken Boa called Handbook to Prayer. It's a delightful way to learn how to pray because most Christians are, we're friends, we're pathetic. We're pathetic. We say the same thing every time we open our mouths. And so we're talking to the God of the universe. We're petitioning. We're praising. We're lamenting. We're asking. We're confessing. Don't you think the most intelligent person in the universe needs a little bit more than just the same thing we said at lunch yesterday. As I often challenge you, I triple dog dare you at lunch not to say the same thing you said the last 300 lunches. You're talking to the guy of the universe. 32 years ago I stood in a hospital hallway with the same Nigerian friend. His wife was pregnant and had a distressful health situation. They rushed her to the hospital. He calls me and my little church office and I drove to the hospital in Dallas and met him and um, his wife had given birth to a 15.5 ounce baby girl. Literally, she would fit between my large finger and the base of my hand. Literally. She was alive. The mom was alive, but they were both still in great distress. So a, a lot of healthcare workers and doctors and they were phenomenal. And they came into the area where we had a private consulting and we're talking to the, the husband, father, because the wife's still in ICU. And they're explaining this as clearly and as simply as they can, answering questions as we had them. And there were a series of surgeries that were going to have to take place, many of them if she was to survive. May you never have to make the decision with a 15.5-ounce baby what to do. And they chose to proceed with surgeries. And this this doctor explained to them in great detail yet manageable what this first surgery was going to be about and she also went on to explain your daughter will most likely be blind and deaf perhaps mute and be fed to a tube the rest of her life because these things weren't developed and we can't fix those things so you have to make some very difficult decisions and she was very kind and, and I mean, remarkable. And I mean, what, who of you as a surgeon and physician would like to talk to a couple about this? So I'm with the husband and we're hearing all this. And I asked a few questions because you're in a state of shock. Sometimes it's nice to have someone there to say, what about? So after she explained everything, Musa says to the surgeon, may I pray for you? I don't know anybody who'd say no to that. And he began to pray. And I won't... Attempt uh, to be indelicate and speak the way he spoke. But a very commanding, very Nigerian, British house of language uh, comes out. It's very powerful. And he says in this prayer, the doctor has given us her verdict. We ask you for your verdict. 32 years, I haven't forgotten that phrase. And I've used it many times. The doctors gave their verdict... And they may be right, but we're waiting on your verdict. When he finished praying, God heard. People heard. Could have heard a pin drop. Opened her eyes. She was shaking. She was a wreck. She was sobbing. She gathered her composure and she said, I wish every patient would pray for me like that. You see, Musa... Unintended consequences exalted the name of Jesus Christ in front of a whole bunch of medical people. And they saw something they don't normally see. Out of jail, you can have joy. In an ER, knowing that your daughter may die, you can choose. Fast forward, anong, which in Hausa means God gives is the same age as my second daughter. She's 32 years of age. She's blind. She's deaf. She's mute. She's fed through a tube. She's been a remarkable, a remarkable drain on the family. And yet they've exalted Christ because it was a life. And they chose to do what they could and let God have the verdict. I don't understand all I know about prayer. I don't understand all I know about exalting Christ. But I would point to that as a capstone experience where someone who loved Christ, who trusted him, who did the, what they could in the world's view, and still came out pointing to Jesus Christ no matter what happened. Whether by life or by death, Anong has a ministry. Well, Paul looked for his deliverance. Secondly, he looks for his destiny, verses 21 to 26, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And, if I, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. More necessary for your sake. We'll come back to that. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue... With you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy in the faith. So that your proud confidence in me, Paul speaking of himself, may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. To live or die. This is no death wish. This is no tortured logic here. This is perhaps the clearest piece of theology in a short space of time you'll ever read on death and the Christian life. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It isn't hard to understand for you BSF precept Bible nerds. You can put this on a chart and put them side by side. It'll blow your mind. What he says in these few English words. Uh, He'd rather be with Christ. But if he stays, it's fruitful labor. This is a loaded term. Uh, Fruit is a term in the New Testament what we talk about, you'll know them by their fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. There's a lot of gummy theology out there. Technically speaking, fruit in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace, That's a character change of an individual. He or she's come to Christ, and they're different than the deeds of the flesh are evident. Those are juxtaposed in Galatians. When we talk about fruit in many places, we're talking about people that have trusted Christ. I would argue fruit that remains is probably a euphemistic phrase of talking about converted people that become disciples and grow in faith. And there's a lot of debate on this. This is a very high view interjection here. But Paul's saying the labor here, this labor he's willing to do is fruitful. It's good work God's given him to do. Um, How many of us have unfruitful, meaningless, humdrum, punch a clock lives. When we lived in northern Virginia, D.C., I had a friend work for the federal government. Great guy, knew the word, wonderful man, hated his job, hated his job. We'd have lunch on occasion, and I'd ask him how he was doing, and he would say, without fail, and I'm just going to make up a random number, I have five years, four months, three days, and eight hours before I can retire. He hated his job. I said, why don't you quit, John? Why don't you find something else? And he went like this. I'm handcuffed to a pension I can't walk away from. I'm sorry. I couldn't live that way. I'd walk the pension, but he was handcuffed to it. Not judging him. That was his choice. But he hated eight and a half to 10 hours of his day, Monday through Friday and Sunday night, had dread to go back to work. He retired, got real involved in ministry, and died. I thought, well, he's with the Lord now, but what a life. His wife's fine. I'm sure she has those benefits. I mean that sincerely, but what a life. Paul says, if I stay here, it's fruitful labor. Keep that in mind. He continues to say, it is necessary for your sake to continue for your progress in joy in, and joy in the faith. This, this area is a weighty word here. It's almost, I think it wouldn't be overstated to say this is a divine constraint. Um, if you read commentaries in 1940s preachers and writers, they'll often use the phrase must needs. I love that phrase. I must needs, we must needs do this. And you may have heard me say that on occasion. I love that phrase. I must do it, and I need to do it. That is the force of what Paul is saying here. It's necessary for your progress, which is a little bit of a -a rope-a-dope. If I stay here, i got to keep working on you. If I stay here, it's for your benefit. The labor, the fruitful labor is for your benefit. Not just because he wanted to hang around. He's already said it very clearly, I'd rather be with Christ. But if Christ wants me here, I'm here for fruitful labor. Roger Ellsworth writes, we associate being torn between options with being happy. Paul is a torn man. He is also a vibrantly happy man. He's torn because, on the one hand, he wants to continue his ministry, and on the other hand, he wants to be with Christ. But he's a joyful man because he knows he will, not be let, he will not be the loser in either case. What a great line. If he dies and goes to heaven, he's not a loser. If he stays, he's not a loser. If he dies, it will be for the cause of Christ, and that will bring honor to his name. If he's released, then he can continue to promote the cause of Christ. In either case, Christ is magnified. Paul's conviction in verse 25, I know that I will remain, leads a lot of people to think he knows he's getting out of jail. He's convinced, okay, I'm going to get out of this. Well, he didn't. (laughs) It did not end well, quote unquote, for him in some respects. His life was very different than he would have had had he gotten out of the situation and continued to minister to churches and plant churches. Um, He is not saying he's convinced he will live. He is saying that If I live, it will be good. If I live, it will be for the sake of Christ. Your progress and joy in the faith. Remember a few weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 12, we looked at that word progress at some length, at some detail. It's a great word. You should write this down in the margin of your Bible. It's to make headway in spite of the blows. To make headway in spite of the blows. It was used as a nautical term. Any of you who like to sail or have power boats, or deep sea fishing or whatever, if you've gone out in the water and you're facing a headwind and choppy water, I don't care who you are, it ain't fun. It ain't fun. You might turn green. You might be sick. You might swear I'll never do this again. And it's an interesting term. To make progress is to make headway in spite of the blows. I wonder if our progress in the Christian faith is always involving blows. Are we always facing headwinds? I don't know. At times, the, oh, the water may seem calm. Just wait. Cheery. Just wait. It may or may not continue that way. Paul's saying, I choose joy. I choose a fruitful labor because I want you to make progress. Well, some lessons here. Number 1, do your do my sufferings exalt Christ. It's an unfair question. It's a hard question. But one I think we need to ask based on the text. Most Americans are looking for the spiritual ibuprofen. I do. I want to fix it. I want a remedy. I want a solution to it. And there's nothing wrong with that, but don't miss perhaps the greater issue is, does your suffering matter? Does my suffering matter? And if it matters, it has to exalt Christ. Acts 16.22 was the passage actually Christy referred to a couple of weeks back. Paul and Silas have been beaten with many blows. They're thrown in prison. They're fastened in their hands and their feet in stocks. So they're beat. They're probably bleeding. They're, pro- they're certainly bruised and in pain. There's no pain medication, and they're chained. And we read, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You can't imprison the gospel. You can imprison an attitude. And Paul and Silas chose to sing. Dear friends of our family, uh, have been through more medical issues than anyone I know. He's had two liver transplants, one of his daughters has had two liver transplants. Kidney transplants are difficult enough, liver transplants a whole other universe, and they have had all kinds of ongoing challenges, and they are remarkable in their faith, remarkable in how they share Christ with people The hospitals and the surgeons and many who've come to Christ through their story over the years. Remarkable that in suffering, in life and death, they've exalted Christ. And unapologetically, unafraid, unabashed, shared Christ with everybody and anybody who will listen. It's very interesting. One hospital that worked on them at one point actually did a big promo for their transplant ward. And they told the whole story. And you know what was left on the editing floor? All the references about Jesus and God. Be that as it may. God is using them and has used them in remarkable ways. And I look at Jim's life and I go, they exalt Christ. They exalt Christ. How do you do? With the bad news. With the hurt. Self-inflicted. Fallen creatures in a fallen context. Or someone that's hurting you, someone unjustly after you, how do you respond? I love that line in Acts 16.25, and the prisoners were listening to them. We saw last week the whole praetorian guard was hearing about Paul. Secondly, are you, am I clear on our purpose in life? Are you and I clear on our purpose in life In our early years, deciding and choosing kind of is fun and exciting in your planning. If you're single, if you're married, if you're going to have kids, how many kids, your job, where you're going to live, your goals. Maybe if you live in middle Tennessee, you better write things down and have a goal, right? Um, you got to have, you know, how you use the, the steward things that God gives you. Um, As you get older, you wax and wane in and out. You narrow your field. Most of us start out with lots of opportunities, and we kind of narrow it down. And then maybe you do different things. And at some point, you might make a big transition in life. But all along this process, we're figuring it out. I don't want to sound like an old man, but let me sound like an old man. The decades go by, and your 60s, 70s, and 80s are very different than you thought they were going to be. And I don't know anybody that really likes it. Some deal with it better. As a friend of mine said, I look in the mirror, he says, what's an old guy like you doing in a young body? What's, what's a young guy like you doing in an old bod like this? We feel that way sometimes. Medicine, our health, our cash, our children, our marriage. We have problems. We go through chemotherapy. You fill in the blank. You got to have a clear purpose. I could tell you stories for the next several hours about people my age that are having the conversation with me. What am I going to do when? 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, it kind of decides for you in the main, not universally. You wake up one day and go, what am I going to do? You got to have purpose. You got to have clarity. talked to a friend not long ago and said, I'm retiring. I don't know what to do. I didn't want to dope slap him, but I kind of did. It's a little late to be asking that question. But I also have compassion. I'm not mad. I'm not going to be mean. Um, can I encourage you that you're precious to God? He knows everything about you. Your health, your money, your fears, your anxiety, Your stress. Your drug use. He knows everything about you. And he loves you. He has a purpose for you. I can't tell you what that is. I can tell you in principle, as Bill Howard and I have talked about many, many times, people in God's word, only two things eternal. Hello, McFly, are you involved with people in God's word? Are you talking about Jesus Christ? Are you in God's word? Everything else will change. Everything else will be burned. Everything else will be left behind. It makes sense to me. Maybe not to you. Um, You have to figure out what you're going to do. Nobody else can. I tell parents all the time, your children are free agents. We've had we have four children, four adult children, and some have done great, some have done not so great. And I console parents all the time. Your kids are free agents. You can't make them a Christian. They stand before Jesus Christ and on two feet. Yes, you shepherd, cajole, encourage, make opportunity, find out their gifts, wants, needs, interests, passions. You try to dial the combination. If you have more than one, they're all different. Parenting with the first child has nothing to do with the second, the third, the fourth, and go on, right? Only if you have more than one kid know that. And you make it up as you go. And, you know, you know, every child has a different set of parents, right? They all experience their parents differently. And they all look at each other differently. Why am I going on about this? Because each person has to make their own decisions. Maturity is when you stop blaming the past, you own the present, and you plan the future. How many times do I have to say it? Stop blaming the past, own the present, plan the future. God, no matter what happened to me, I'm not going to live the rest of my life identified as X. I I got today. Stop blaming the past, own today, and plan the future. It's pretty simple. Dave Gibson, who's preached here on a number of occasions, the big galoot, my friend, when he retired, we were in Dallas with a bunch of high-powered people at lunch and he pulled out, I asked him, I said, tell these folks what you're going to do in retirement. He pulled out, he, he's a paper guy. He has more paper than, I, I can't get him all electronics. It's a fool's errand. But he, he likes to write. Then he's got just, mm. so he brings this paper thing. And he, he has pages of what he's going to do in retirement. And I think he's got eight or ten grandkids, I forget. And how he's going to disciple each one of his grandchildren. And very specifically, I'm going to take so-and-so to Joshua, Joshua State Park, is that what it's called? I'm going to take so-and-so on a train trip. I mean, and, and what he's going to do when he's with that granddaughter or grandson and how he does these things. And, and he likes to preach and speak in the kids. He's writing a book right now called In His Father's Wake. He's got all these things. And all these high-powered guys in my stuff are going, I feel like a toad. He's put thought to it. He's written it down. And you know what? He's working it. Finally, or not finally, maybe. Third, are we spiritually sober about our life and death? This is a cheery Michael Easley sermon. Are you spiritually sober about your life and your death? I mean, we plan for everything. Spend less than you earn. Do it for a long time. You'll be successful. Eat well. Exercise. You may or may not have heart issues. Raise your children. Teach them. Do this program and brainwash them. Maybe they'll turn out to love Jesus. Work hard. Excel in work. Get a degree. We, we live with all this. But we don't ever think about dying. I've done hundreds of funerals. And very few of them have thought about dying. And their family certainly hasn't. Why wouldn't you plan for the one thing that's 100% sure? And plan for everything else. Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. You couldn't find a better, more succinct Christian theology on life and death than in those few words. Moses opined in Psalm 90, one of my treasured psalms, give us the meaning of our hands. Twice, yes, Lord, give us the meaning. Did my life count? Some of you watched Saving Private Ryan. Tell me I'm a good man. Did my life matter? Was it worth it? Schindler's List. I could have done more. My dad had a one-frame cartoon on this four-door file cabinet in his home office. It was the cowboy. On a horse. The cowboy's hat was flying. He was holding the hat. He's pulling the reins on the horse. The horns, horse's nostrils and mouth and eyes are giant. They're going off a huge cliff on the way to their death. And the caption reads, Whoa! Blank, 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 blank. Whoa! And every time he looked at that, he'd bust out laughing. My dad's sense of humor. I like it. I can't say the words. It's too colorful. The horse and the rider were dead. And the guy's yelling, whoa. Many Christians live this way. Bishop H. C. Moore wrote, The dying hour is to Paul the mere gateway into the large room of the presence of Christ. Our days are numbered. Don't live in morbid fear, morbid fear. Don't live in an EOR world. But don't be silly. Don't be ignorant. Take a lesson from Paul to die is gain, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I can't lose either way. Sure, people left behind may or may not be sad. Some may be glad when I'm gone, some may be glad when you're gone. That doesn't matter. To die is not to give up, to die is to gain. We of all people should face these things with a confidence and a surety and an assurance, right?